Today is Good Friday, a very important time for the Christian community. And a reminder for everyone. It's a holiday period also, I mean a, a bank holiday for many people. To celebrate this um, event. <coughs> and... Um, I think we're all very pleased that the weather in England has changed. Not because it's just hotter, feels more like the south of France where I come from, but also you notice the immediate effect of a happy sunny weather on the chitta, on the mind and the body. Maybe some people don't do very well in a hot climate but we can really uh, see quite clearly that there's something very relaxing about being in the warmth. <laughs> and when it's all around the planet, not the planet, but at least around England, I think a lot of people are happy, and uh, England is a lot more happy, I think, just generally. <laughs> this kind of relaxation. This morning I was reading to the nuns a passage of Lompo Cha about practice, meditation, and uh, the fa those, those famous concepts which have, can create in people's mind a lot of uh, confusion, you know, between the practice of samadhi and the practice of vipassana or developing wisdom, developing samadhi. I'm not going to go into this right now, but um, what struck me is that um, most, most of the teaching of the Buddha, apart from his knowledge, profound knowledge, um, mega knowledge of the mind, the, the, the universe, the different realm of existence, and so on, uh, uh, many of the teachings of the Buddha are really uh, sort of, you can divide them fairly sim simply. It's, um, you know, really understanding and comprehending and knowing 
what this what the human mind is about, which is not your brain only, it's a world you create. Your mind is creating your world, so it's a, it's a big thing. You have six doors, which keep on being quite busy creating the world. You right? What you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch, what you think, and what you know, and what you smell. It's a it's a busy world of of creation. And so, um, sometime, you know, at some point, you realize that you need some help because the, the, you can't always make sense of what you're thinking one thing, you're feeling another, you're remembering uh, something, and immediately it kind of triggers some ter terrific kind of um, effect or reactions from oneself on emotional level, physical level, health level, and so on. You know, and then you want to be really nice and friendly, and especially if you start in the Buddhism, then the ideals are kind of really um, very active in terms of trying to follow the good, the, the path of a good Buddhist. And a good Buddhist is a path that takes you to being really kind and loving and compassionate and generous and patient. And there's a long list of what the Buddha calls the Kusala Dharma the quality of the mind that really enhance your path of liberation. Right? And then you have also the knowledge of the Akusala Dharma, which means all the negative, afflictive emotions and all the all the all the creation of the world of the, of your mind's world that uh, you know make you go through a lot of misery and a lot of pain, a lot of hurt and a lot of um, anxiety and worry or shame or whatever, all these things, you know. So when you come to Amaravati, you may have read a lot about Buddhist teaching and so on, and you might be even very scholarly, um, you know, on this on this subject. But when the, 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 you come to this monastery, as many of you have noticed, you need to, um, you know, you touch a very different level. The intellect is one thing, the intelligence of an, a good intellect is quite, you know, it's very important, but it's only a, a relatively superficial level of knowledge, as we know. Most of us have discovered that already. Otherwise, we would not be here. The dissatisfaction with a mind that just um, conditioned and dependent on just remembering thinking is, you know, it's it's a, it's not a bad thing. But it, it doesn't go very deep, you know, it doesn't really transform the mind very deeply. I used to be, uh, it was a bit cheeky on my part to, 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 to say that it's like a dancer trying to, to become a dancer by reading a manual of dance. Wouldn't go very far, would you? I don't think your plie or your pirouette would go very far by just reading the manual. Huh? And so, um, you know, studying meditation is like really reading the the real the life's the life's book the the book of your life, the book of your what you call we call it a heart. It's just a word that was being used. We in Pali we use the word chitta, the mind, heart, right? Which in in a language in English really can be used both ways. And so. <coughs> You know, when you realize that the, the limits of just um, conceptual knowledge, uh, academic knowledge, um, you know, then you, you 
obviously when we become interested in finding out uh you know what's all about what this is all about and uh on the path of practice it's quite a, a, a it's not an easy path to to walk it's not an easy path to follow at all because it, it really asks you to be seeing things as they are and seeing things as they are uh you know uh, are very varied sometimes what you see uh, see part of the things as they are might be a very happy moment a great sense of confidence in yourself uh, a sense of really hope and uh very a positive future or something in your heart you may have a feeling a very happy feeling that's one part of the things as they are as at, at other time it's like you remember your boyfriend or girlfriend who left you uh you remember the 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 disease maybe you had and how awful that was the fear of losing your parents you know the the fear of not being a, a good person you know many people don't feel good about themselves it's a shame isn't it only have one lifetime you better start waking up you know we can't spend a whole life just feeling terrible about who we think we are so um the buddhist teaching is really about a lot of the um you know the information we get from his uh, discourses is about finding means to calm the mind down to appease the mind you know we call it samadhi but samadhi just at, at that point the ajahn chak calls it let's not call it jhana or let's not call it this or that just call it a tranquil mind that's kind of closer to home isn't it than seeing the first jhana second jhana third jhana. you know the eighth jhana and you say my god where do i go from here you know a tranquil mind is like kind of closer to home isn't it but it, it, you know you know it's, the past is not about absorbing into things it's about being awake and being mindful and being aware So when we look at things as they are sometimes they're not particularly pretty. You know, you may have done something you regret in the past, memory. You may have done uh you know things that you were very critical about about someone or about yourself, about your parents, your friends, you know, and realize at some point that this critical mind is really simply a mental state. It's not a personal view that is completely totally um and uh, you know unmovable you know so many of our views and opinions you know that which mean a set of thoughts a set of ideas a set of of, of concepts we feel are not movable because you're right this is a only way this is a way and the only way so just like anything that's kind of um fixed not seen as the buddha says you know it's all impermanent it's worth investigating we don't have to believe it we don't have to be blinded and think that ah oh, i find god you know the god of anicca and start praying to it right or i haven't find the the foundable truths and start making them some kind of um you know divine entity somewhere you know no it's just simple tools to help us to appease the mind because not just concentrating the mind with one object bringing peace into the mind with one object appease the mind or can appease the mind 
but also when you understand something, suddenly when something is like clear, when you have an insight into a particular uh, construct of your mind, particular habits, have you noticed how much that insight, that lightening insight, brings peace to the heart? It's like this knowledge. Suddenly you have a knowledge you didn't have before. And this knowledge is very particular. It's something you can't even fathom it when it happens, you know. Nothing special. It's not very big. It's nothing. In fact, sometimes the bigger the inside, the less what happened, you know. It's like, I'm talking about simple insight, just seeing a thought as an isha. Many of our thoughts, we can think, oh, it's all an isha, all the thought are an isha, all the feeling are an isha. But we still live with a very strong view that things are permanent or semi-permanent, permanent enough to create misery for longer than it needs to be. You know, maybe our mind states are unhappy, dukkha, and they can come across the mind very quickly. You know, once you have practiced for a while, you can see anicca quite quickly, anicca of your thoughts, you can see it. The same anisha with feeling, the pain, the happiness, and all that. All this is very transient and moving around all the time. And then disappearing as well. So, um, that the, the main tool is, you know, is bringing peace to the heart and understanding to the heart, which leads to peace. Because as Ajahn Shah, many of the great masters of meditation will tell you in this particular tradition, um, just bringing peace to the mind doesn't liberate it particularly. It doesn't lead you to insight because you haven't seen the kilesa, what you, the afflictive emotions, the unskillful, you know, the miserable mental states that everybody knows. All the newspapers are about the uns unskillful kilesa, you know, the unskillful mental states. You read the, any newspaper, it's about murdering, it's about killing, it's about love affairs, it's about being promiscuity, and it's about uh, greed, it's about hatred, war, the whole thing, the whole world. If you read too much the news, your news, you feel the whole world is just a, a huge kind of a courtyard of disaster. becomes a small world, like a village, global, the famous global village entity that we like, that many people like the idea of being a global village. It's unfortunate when the global village is full of war and misery, and we don't feel the space even the countryside. We go to the countryside, we remember the news, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, Syria and, uh, you know, everywhere. There is something, Africa, America, all the killing and going, South Africa, you know, Russia, China, the whole thing, the whole world is at war. It's, you know, the war of business, the war of, uh, you know, power or the war of, you know, it's the politics, which is all about that. That's exactly what's, what's, what creates this world. It's that we share the politics worldwide. So, thank goodness we have the Buddhist teaching to make us understand how to cope with all this information and how to cope with, uh, you know, this incredible conflicted impression we, we, we get from never much hearing something good about life, you know, outside. Just the struggle, the conflict, the difficulties, the problem that people have, the, wow. And you think you, you, you might be depressed. And no wonder you're depressed, you know. You're sharing a lot of misery. 
It's like a soup, you know, you're just bathing in that soup of misery. But you can't escape it either, even in a monastery, not so far from London, where you have access to news very easily. You, you can feel, you have to be very careful. The mind can really get sucked in into this world of misery. So if I ask you, for example, right now, how are you feeling? Are you happy? Are you miserable? Are you tired? Are you clear-minded? Are you distracted? Do you feel you have enough? Do you feel your world is abundantly filled with a lot of happy things? Or do you feel your world is abundantly filled with most depressing thoughts and feelings and perceptions, you know, at any moment? Because very often when we don't have the knowledge of Anicca yet, unfortunately things lingers really a long, long time, and then we stuck there. But fortunately, as I said before, this teaching takes us to the most basic truth of life. When the Buddha says everything is anicca, dukkha, and anatta, imp uh, yeah, impermanence, unsatisfactory, and not self, is not your stuff, is not something you create, you know, most of the time is created beyond your control. Most of one's life is created beyond our control. We have very little control of it. You can direct your life in a good way. I'm not saying you can't do that. Of course, you can guide your mind. But that's already a level, a higher level. When you get to know yourself, you're not so frightened by, by your mind, and you start helping it, helping the world you create to move towards a direction of happiness and peace and confidence and uh, strengths and so on, rather than it, their opposites. And that's possible, which is a good, good news. But it is work. You know, it is a real... Uh, it, it's not work. For me, it's my passion, so I don't have any problem. As a, you know, I'm into my loving passion. So that helps, you know what I mean? It's not everybody who feel passionate and happy and loving the Dhamma in the way I maybe maybe I feel, you know. So for me, I'm, I just love this life, love the practice, love the past, and I really want to share that love with you, you know, because in the in the end, what is the point of living if you haven't trained your mind to a degree where you can? actually generate, create, and, uh, you know, live within a happy world. Simply because happiness benefits so many people, yourself first, right? It's not a matter of being, saying I must be a good girl or bad boy or bad, bad, a good boy or bad girl. And so it's not a choice between this and that. It's more, at some point one gets, the practice takes you beyond me, 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 only me. But it's not something you can actually control until it happens. For a long time, you have to focus yourself, you have to focus your mind on this world here, on me. That's why you have to, I remember when I was a, a young nun, you know, in the early years at Chitters, I was quite, 
myself, I'm quite ebullient and I, you know, I can talk and I can be quite extrovert and so on. Although I've learned restraint quite a lot, you know, become more English in that way. But, um, you know, I remember one nun who is not a nun anymore. She used to walk up and down the cottage between the main house and the, the nun's cottage. And she would go, uh, you know, she would be like walking up the lane with a face absolutely, you know, slightly dark and fixed, you know, kind of frozen. And then me and Ajahn Chandeshwe we would go down the, <laughs> chatting about something, down the lane. And uh, I remember either myself or Chandeshwe would say, oh yeah, she's practicing a mindfulness. You know, she's developing a So many people develop mindfulness with this kind of miserable looking face, you know, like fixed gaze. Utterly miserable looking. They don't then, I don't know, sometimes people are taught to, to, to practice like this. Don't, don't smile, don't laugh, you know. Even in Thailand, I was told in the early years of my, of my life that arahants are not supposed to smile. Well, do you want to be an arahant if you never smile? I mean, from the level I was at, you know, <laughs> you like laughter and kind of good, happy, happy feeling and so on. And you say, do I really want an ara to be an arahant? Supposed never to smile? You never get a sense why they never smile, you know. They never smile because they're quite peaceful. They don't need to smile. They're just happiness and peace already is there. You talk to them, they'll be really happy people. You know, so it's different kind of smile. It's an inner smile. Don't, not everybody needs to see it. Yeah? So that practice brings you to that level where you can really be happy and very, very, have a big smile in the heart there. You know. But you don't need to ex expose it to the whole world because people don't like that anyway. If you smile too much, they get fed up. You can depress them even. You notice if you're smiling all the time, people start feeling really upset with you. People don't dare smiling because they think they you know they get misunderstood, and there's so many interpretation of somebody smiling at your face. You can interpret it in so many ways. I mean, I know the stories of smiling. Sorry, I diverge a little bit to smiling, but I want to tell you a little story. You know about addiction <laughs> because the Buddha talks mostly about our addiction. We can be from addicted to being addicted to alcohol, to drinks, addicted to violence and anger, addicted to, uh, you know, um, uh, to wrong speech and so on. You know, the five precepts, the eight precepts are all uh, uh, pointing towards action and speech and, you know, that the mind has been addicted for most people. You know, speaking rudely, speaking angrily, speaking impatiently, speaking stressfully. You know, people get addicted to that. So this is an addiction. You can look at it as an addiction. Just a habit. You know, there's another word for addiction. It's habit. Right? Or, and, and, and then I got, I, I got this, um, you know, clear, a clear seeing of the fact that I felt, you know, like many of the women, nowadays it doesn't happen. I'm the old generation, you know, when I went to America, none of the women smiled. They were all feminist, and they, they were not at all into smiling. They were not going to be the sweet little smart girl, never again in their life, you know, exclamation mark. I'm not going to smile. If the guys want me to smile, and so, no. It's, I was shocked, you know, I was like 
straight face, you know. Anyway, I felt myself that I was smiling. I became aware that I was smiling too much. You know, to look pretty and sweet and sort of charming kind of thing. We don't notice these things until a little while when you study yourself. And I thought, I'm fed up with that, you know. I don't want to be that. I'm going to do something. This worry was driven by aversion, not quite the full wisdom, you know, driven by aversion of not wanting to be the, the sweet girl. But sometime I would, and I could tell a whole, I could write a whole book about the really usefulness of, of Kilesa. Because sometimes your aversion or your, uh, you know, your kind of uh, self-concern, your attachment to self can bring you to very profound insight if you know how to navigate through that. So my smile for one week, I decided I'm not going to smile at all. I was quite determined. I'm still determined. But at that time, I said, I just say, I'm, okay, I'm, you know, it's like a transformative, following a transformative teaching in some way. Just do it, experiment it rather than thinking about it. So I decided for one week, I won't smile. And I knew by cutting it, I've never been into AA alcoholic or anything like that. You know, just taking away your addiction can help a lot to change the habits. As people, maybe some of you have been in this kind of circle with a lot of help. So for me, I, one week I didn't smile. So I catch myself. As soon as I wanted to smile, I would go back to straight face for that. And then at some point, Ajahn Sumer was really so concerned. He asked Ajahn Chandesiri if he'd done anything to me. She, she, he saw, <laughs> she thought I'd been doing some, he's been doing something that makes me stop smiling to him. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 she's doing a practice. So that was kind of relieved. And so after that, I'm not telling you a story just to talk about myself. I'm just telling the story because really it's uh, the experience of when you stop a habit, then after that you can actually smile when you want, appropriately, to understand, adapted to situation, to people, to, you know, you're more free to live your life freely. So that's really important to think of that as a way to happiness. When we feel more free, then naturally, you know, less fear, less, you know, more free in that sense, then immediately the heart becomes more happy. So, um, yeah, when you think of addiction, I spoke to you about that already, you know, the addiction of um, our mind and body, our action and speech and so on. I was talking to you about the difficulty of walking the path. It's not easy. That's why you have monastery, I suppose. It's a place where you can be as miserable looking as you want and nobody is going to butt an eyelid. They just leave you in peace. You look really utterly wretched. You look really averse and angry. You can just be yourself. <laughs> You're not going to be asked, why? Are you, have I done something, you know, or did you, you know, blah, blah, blah. You just let them be. That's, you know, they're working with the first noble truth. Leave them alone. You know, don't start disturbing them while they are observing, <laughs> whatever they're observing, something difficult or whatever. Maybe they've had a, you know, a fight with somebody and they're just recovering. Or maybe they had a fight with themselves. And they're just kind of navigating through their mind, feeling really remorseful and guilty and shameful and all that, you know. So, 
That's not easy, isn't it? To go through shame, to, free, to be free from shame. To go through anger, to be freed from anger. To go through greed, envy, jealousy, misery of all kind. To allow them to leave the mind for good at some point. We're not there. None of us are around yet. But at least you allow them to open the door and go. Goodbye. I've seen you already. You can leave me. I don't have any interest in your, you know, effect on me. So, this is great, isn't it? Ajahn Sumedhu used to say, bring, you know, open the door to, you know, just let the prisoners out. We imprison our, our sort of addiction, keep our mind imprisoned in this old habit of misery. So if I can inspire you, encourage you to really not be frightened, to be in a place where you're not frightened to see all these things which are not particularly pleasant. Remorse, feeling inadequate. You know, all these old conditions we can have from childhood, from my education, for my parents, for myself, for what we are born into this life with and all that. And it's good to know it's not mine even if you don't believe it at all. But at least you can begin to investigate, you know. Why am I feeling so guilty? Why am I feeling so shameful? Why am I feeling so miserable right now? And then, after a while, you might just actually say, it's just one thought. Not my whole life or, you know, 30 years. It might just be one feelings coming through the heart, which is touching some deeper level of memory in your body and your mind. And then if you believe that feeling, then you start, you start again the whole world, the old world of, you know, going back 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you have tapped into, you have your mind has, a, has been able, Mara, I call it Mara, has been able to really gather all her armies, okay? And she's on the, you know, she's working very hard to make you believe that what goes on in your mind is real. That's Mara in Technicolor. It's good to have a word for it. Mara means death. It's a good word. Why it's a good word? It's because you can see death and you can let it go. With all your dying, you know, <laughs> remember the part in the um, Dhammapada, you have mindful, you know, um, I think it's, uh, mindfulness is a way to, um, I can't uh, how do you get the word in English? Is uh, it's mindfulness? It's a kind of uh, it's another word, isn't it? It's not heedfulness. It's not mindfulness. It's vigilance or something like that. Okay. So um, basically, vigilance is a way to the deathless. Non-vigilance is a way to death. Those who are vigilant never die. Those who are non-not vigilant are already walking as they're dead. Are already dead. So basically, when you see Mara, you see the dead part of you. If that's going to help. And you open the door and say goodbye. That helps. I think my, well, that's my concept. You know, I'm not an intellectual particularly, but I'm very visual, and I have a quite creative mind, so I can, I can bring up all these little characters in me. That helps me a lot. To befriend my little characters, in other words. you know, Because you know, Mara doesn't sort of needs a lot of meta in some ways <laughs> because Mara is just 
you know, the five candas, thoughts, feeling, perception, you know, construct, uh, the body, and the sense consciousness, you know, consciousness going through the six senses. So Mara is at work when you stop feeling yourself really miserable. When you are miserable, you're in the, in the, you know, in the clutch of Mara. So you befriend Mara. Hi, Mara. I know you're there to fool me, right? To make me feel that what's happening to me is real, is mine. It will never go. Everybody's wrong. It's the fault of the everybody. Well, maybe one or two. But, you know, Mara is good. Mara is self. Mara is me. That's Mara. And Mara and me, I, self, call it whatever you want, ego, is, has a wonderful, a wonderful ability. It has the ability to always find somebody responsible for your wrongs. It's amazing. It doesn't, the self does never want to take on board the fact that he's done something wrong. It's only your conscious that starts consciously reflecting on things. Maybe I was not wise. But you notice when somebody hurts you, I'm not talking maybe now you're advanced on your past, you might not be doing that now, but in the early, uh, in early years, you might have noticed that so, as soon as somebody hurts you, you want to hurt them back. You notice that? It's your fault. I haven't done anything wrong. Right? Immediately, it's absolutely a perfectionist in blaming others. Self is a perfectionist in blaming others. You could put that on your front door somewhere to remember that others only exist here, actually. It's a perception of others that makes you troubled. If you change the perception in you of others, you start having a much happier time, don't you? If you realize that the other person is here, it's a perception. You see that person, you think about that person, you feel about that person, you uh, imagine about that person, you project onto this person. All this is what's happening in your mind. Do you understand? <clears throat> Once you see that clearly, then you begin to lift up. You know, the, the heart lifts up. It's lighter. You know, when I was 16 or 17, I remember... I was, uh, you know, in a way, I was, you know, a bit of a scapegoat in the family, you know, not always, but, you know. And I remember feeling criticized and so on, you know, but I, you know, it was not particularly correct, but I always felt responsible for it. I never felt anybody else was responsible. I didn't have any Buddhist in my life or any Buddhism, anything. But funnily enough, the little wisdom I had at the time used to sit, I used to hear, it's easier to um, work with myself than to sort out everybody else. Can you imagine? It's nice, isn't it? I felt, in a way, clever at the time. You know, I didn't feel wise. I just felt I was clever to actually blame myself because it's easier to blame one person than blame too many people. So I, I used to blame myself always. Nobody maybe knew particularly because I did not know how to express that. Or even maybe I did not want to know people to know that I blame myself because maybe people would not understand. Because I could not blame my parents. 
It has a reason. My parents were perfect. When you're young and, and, and young, you often see your parents in that light. Your parents are perfect. Or your even siblings are perfect. But the parents particularly. So that was my uh, mistake, of course. You know, but there we are. I didn't see them as human. human. I saw them as perfect. They were never wrong. So that's why I felt I was wrong. But in that sense, uh, I made it work for me. You see, even at the age of 14, 15, 16, I made it work. I said, easier to blame myself and to care about this one than to have to blame my parents and have to, you know, care about those. So you have to be very careful how the mind works. It's a real, real trickster. I want to tell you that. It's a trickster. Never believe your mind until you have enough wisdom of understanding and wisdom to really trust it, intuitive wisdom. Because the mind will just trick you in any, with anything. And the projection, I was reflecting on projection lately, how much that, that mind is, you know, is completely addicted to projection, projecting onto others. Somebody doesn't look at you nicely, oh, they're thinking badly about me. I'm not just, this is just one word out of my hundreds of, uh, you know, hundreds of objects that my perception could create in me. Uh, they don't uh, look at me because they don't like me. I mean, it's all about like and dislike at some point, if you want to have a general category. <laughs> those who like me and those who don't. You know, those people in, in your mind, you can have these kind of little boxes, you know. So they don't talk to you or they don't like me. They talk to you or they like me. You know, they, so it's kind of basic, basically. They look at me nicely and friendly. Oh, I feel really good. I must be me. <laughs> I must, they must do this for me. They must think I'm really nice. The next day, they don't look at me. Oh, dear, what did I do wrong that they don't look at me? You know, is there something I did? You know, oh, therefore, oh, here they are, just long face again, you know, miserable. They must be practicing their mindfulness. <laughs> I don't see that anymore. But... You know, you can just project anything onto people. Be very, very, very careful. Because just as the mind is a trickster, your perceptions are also a trickster. You know, they really make you believe things that do not exist. Always check with reality. Always go to the person at the right time, the right moment, you know, maybe with another friend <laughs> to be confident, to not going to upset the person again if you think you have upset them. You know, make sure that, um, you know, you're not going yourself into trouble again. So otherwise it's better to say nothing, you know. But don't, you know, watch the mind creating reality of its own. It creates its own reality, in other words. And then you end up into a completely false reality. You know, there is no real. You know, we talk about reality as something real. So you have the reality you create in your mind, according to your ideas, your addictions, your you know assumption and all that. And then there is more reality in the here and now when you check your mind. What's happening to me? What am I thinking right now? What am I feeling right now? What, am I, what, what kind of perception are coming about myself, about others right now? So the present moment is really a wonderful place to check in the reality of now, what they call, you know, you know the famous book of Eckhart Tolle, that everybody adores this book. Well, 
I want to say, Kato came here to Amarawati when he was just recovering from enlightenment in the, in the park of London. Some of you know his history. He came here several times and we had a chat with him. He was just a nobody special. He was just kind of slightly in transient, transient mode between complete delusion and complete liberation. You know, that was kind of difficult to, to, to reach, the, to reach the, the, the reality of what he was and what he is now. And the past does the same to us as well, but it's gradual, fortunately. I don't know if Eckhart Tolle is enlightened. I have no idea. I don't want to create anything on him. But he obviously had a mega you know, experience of some sort, okay? To speak the way he speaks, you know. So be careful the world about the world you create. I met somebody this morning who's who's here. I think the same person. I said, smile. I said, oh my God, I hope this person doesn't think I'm controlling a distance, you know. Because sometimes we don't realize how much, how much tension we hold in our face and in our jaw and in our eyes. And instead of relaxing, which is what the Dhamma is aiming at, relaxation, easefulness, you know, and vigilance also. You know, you're not just relaxing and kind of with a, uh, you know, a, a glass of beer and smoking and so on. It's not, uh, not that kind of relaxation. It's just inner relaxation, inner sense of feeling good about oneself. You know, even if you feel miserable, you say it's okay to feel like that. It's okay. It's transient. Remember. Remember, it's not mine. Check that. Is it yours? It feels so much mine so long, for so long. It feels like I have created it. I deserve that misery. You know, it will never go. I'll be there in 10 years' time. I'll still be as stupid as I am now. I mean, look at foolish it is to think like that. When the transformation of the mind can happen so quickly, just by not acting on these kind of thoughts, not holding on to them, believing them, and so on. So now that takes us to the creation of the mind that can actually enhance your, your, your mind and body. Once you've seen how to handle, as uh, Jack Confield calls it, after the ecstasy, the laundry, you know, once you have kind of know how to handle your inner laundry, right? I like that. It doesn't work so well, so well in French. It's been translated into French. It doesn't have the same zest but as in English, same inspiring words. French are not into laundry and ecstasy. They don't, they're not into this kind of thing. You have the strong intellect, you know, and you, philosophy is there. They're kind of optimum, you know. They have abandoned religion. The intelligent one abandoned religion. Now they're in science and, and, and philosophy. Even philosophy, science is even more intelligent, you know, than philosophy for many people nowadays. So, now that takes us to the point where you can master the art of happiness. You know, you stop dragging yourself into hell again and again and again, right? Through lack of vigilance and lack of skills. You don't maybe have the skill to lift yourself out of the mud, you know. But it's about time you learn it, don't you? It's, so, it's such a kind of win-win solution. Even if you have terrible thought about yourself, you still can let them go and turn yourself into a very different person. 
particularly if you start cultivating the past and the qualities that are really beautiful quality, what you call subana chitta, you know, the beautiful quality of mind. You don't have to believe in them because that's another delusion. But it's like once you start freeing your heart from the idea that your mind is yours and mine and, you know, I have to control it all the time because I'm frightened it's going to lose control. You don't have to do that. Now you say it's mine is not mine. You know, you, you have, you've seen it clearly. How many times you try to control your mind, it doesn't do what you want. You don't have to be a sotapanna or some kind of, you know, elevated state of liberation. Just an ordinary being can really see that you can, it can control its mind. He or she cannot control their mind for very long. Look, I'm just talking about the women now. You want to do your diet because you want to sleep down and look good. In England, it's not a big problem, I notice. You know, if you go to the state, some people are very fat, you know, and they want to lose weight for health often, right? But even when you're very thin, people still they think they are fat, you know, so it's very subjective, as you can see. But you say, well, I'm going to be without sugar and cake for three days. Is your mind yours at that moment? Check three days later whatever you've been doing with that, with that vow of, uh, you know, that determination to do something for three days. You can't hold it for very long. It looked good on first day. Say, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. By the end of the day, my God, you know, I didn't think I can go for tomorrow and the next day I'm out. And all the creation of your mind creating health, telling you you won't be able to do it. I had this with trying to give up chocolate for the Vasa, you know, many years ago. You know, for about two weeks before the Vasa, I had all this perception, you're going to kill somebody. Be careful, Sundar. You won't be able to do three months. You know, you're going to really be, you're going to be really violent and brutal. You won't be able to handle the lack of sugar, any, you know. This con continuous kind of frightening perception, if I was giving up sugar, I was going to be a hell person for three months, you know. Well, the time came when I gave up sugar, it was fine. Oh, chocolate, sorry, it was fine. You know, but I'm talking someone, some, as somebody who's done all the, not the wrong thing, but gone through all these things. I'm not talking to you as an ideal, an, an idea. But I'm just telling you, that if that happened to you, don't let it crush you when you can do something else. We're not perfect. So if you try for three days, you say, I'm going to give up this, and you can't, and then you feel terrible. Don't lose your confidence. Instead of doing that, don't lose your confidence and say, well, you haven't done so well, but let's start again. Just be an ally of your beautiful mental states rather than demolishing all the good work you do. Even the thought of not having sugar is a good thing, maybe, or cakes, let's say cakes, is a good thought, isn't it? Or not having somebody, something that kind of makes your mind really confused at some point. Or greedy, you're looking for a cake, a next cake, or next this. England is not too greedy, but the French are very greedy. more you go south, the more people are greedy. I think it has to do with Protestantism. It's more kind of serious. Catholics are more into enjoying themselves, celebrating life and so on, drinking and so on. I'm sure the British, I said, do that too. But it's definitely a Protestant, it's a Protestant religion. Uh, makes you more serious <laughs> than Catholic, I think.
more kind of dutiful, responsible. That's what my father used to tell me when he met some... He wasn't religious anymore, but he liked people who were kind of Protestant because he felt they could work really hard and very responsibly. They were really kind of, you know, serious people. You could trust them. As a Catholic in, you know, in a Catholic country like France, people are not, you know, British don't trust the French much, you know, you notice that. <laughs> I start being a bit the same myself, being so British now. I mean, I still have a French accent, but never mind that. Anyway, to go back to <laughs> get you out, getting you out of the mud and the, the mire, some, I think there's a word called mire in English, yeah, of life. Don't give up on yourself. The, the, I'm going into the Sobanas Chitta, you know, the beautiful mental state that you support in yourself. And one of them, of course, the most, the most beautiful one is metta, loving kindness. And that is, if you want to, to have a good doctor in yourself, a good healer in yourself, a good being in yourself, a happy, happy heart in yourself, just cultivate metta. There's nothing like it. Well, for me, there's something more like it. And I don't know if I can give you the secret. For example, you empty your mind. That's really the biggest meta. For me, when I empty my mind of creating things, then I know that my mind is in a good place. You understand? The meta is to take you to that place where you can let go of things quickly, you know, without really thinking much about it. So when you stop creating, that's a beautiful meta as well. But before you do that, you know, and after you have reacted to meta, because many people can't stand us being kind, smiling, relaxed, not everybody, but the broad generosity, you know, of culture, cultural generosity, cultural generosity. We like talking about the weather in England, you know, sort of things that go wrong, moaning, but the British do that with, interpreted by the French. You say, gosh, there's a pain in the neck, the wits, you know, they're always complaining about things. But when you know the British people, you know, they're having a great fun talking about these things. <laughs> and great sense of humor with it. You know, it's not like it's all bad. They really enjoy themselves talking about weather, the things that go wrong, moaning about this. And, you know, when you understand the British better, you know, it's like, it's not heavy anymore. So that was my cultural progress over 40 years in England, right? So it's not that bad. When I see British talking about negatively, I don't believe they're just being miserable. I just think they're enjoying themselves now. <laughs> but still, we are, as Buddhists, we know the mind well enough to know that enjoying yourself is not indulging, you know, blindly into being critical of life all the time. So, to practice metta, when you can't do it, you know, the, the metta becomes really, really good when you stop believing your thoughts. When you stop believing your thoughts, then your thoughts become very powerful. If you believe in your thinking, you have a reaction at some point. I'm talking about Westerners like that. I don't know the Asian, how you function. But the Westerners, you know, <laughs> too, too, too kind for a, while, for a while, it takes you back because I'm fed up with that, you know. You start being angry on the other side. This kind of, the mind keeps swinging, you know. You want to be too good and you start wanting to do all the nasty things you can find, you know. 
two kind of two kind of a good model for yourself, and then after that, all the condition for not doing a good model comes up. It's a balancing. It's like a swing. The mind, you know, kilesa like that. You haven't eaten for a few days. You eat little for a few days, and after that, the mind forgets all about what it has kind of uh, sort of uh, vow to do, and you go into eating all the cakes you can find. But once you start knowing that the mind is not yours, you can't begin to look at it as a machine. It's like a blind machine. And you don't have to hate the machine, do you understand? You don't have to hate the swinging machine feeling of your mind. You just realize that's what you, we live with. Do you understand? We live with something which is out of control of us until we bring the Dharma, the mindfulness, the seeing, the, the quality in yourself to observe the mind as it is. And you stop fighting with its mechanism, habitual mechanism of going this way, that way, yo yo. You stop fighting it. What you do, you become mindful of it. You bring stillness to the mind. Okay? And you observe. As you observe, Ajahn Shah used to say something I loved. Mindfulness is a graveyard of all things. I absolutely love that. It meant something very much to me. Things die. Thank goodness for that, you know. It's wonderful. You don't want to have nasty things hanging on around your neck for your next 30 years. They just die in there. And that's exactly what happened. You're mindful of a, of a thought. Immediately it disappears. Maybe not at the beginning, but after a while, the thoughts come. And I remember my emotional reaction. I used to say, I saw a very subtle emotional reaction. Well, I don't want to lose all my thoughts, you know. It's like, shall I be mindful or not? You know, do I, wa do I want to continue to be mindful? Maybe I don't want to have any thoughts anymore. Ah, fear, you know. Maybe my mind won't be thinking anymore. Wow. Would I become a kind of a, I don't know, a cabbage? You know, we have a lot of fear like this that just, you know, rampant behind all the screens. And then, of course, that fear left eventually, you know, the fear of not thinking anymore. Then I began to be more trusting. I said, never mind that. I'm sure I'll think when it's needed. So the, the thing, the Dharma takes you to think when it's needed. To think more, you know, in a more opportune way. To think when it's necessary. It takes a while for those who are attached to thinking. But little by little, the path of Dharma really takes you in the right direction, in a balanced direction, you know. At first, you know, to get there, you need to go through a lot of fear. Before fear is what makes you swing this way, make you swing that way. Right? You're not doing it. It's fear doing it. Do you understand? So it's not used to blame oneself anymore. You might feel the sense of remorse when you do something wrong, but in Buddhism, remorse is a good quality. There's two words, fear and remorse, or shame and fear. You know, These two qualities become really beautiful when they are actually, you can read them in a different way. You begin to read them as, oh, my mind is telling me I have to work on something a bit more. Do you understand? It's like giving you a signal, simply a, gen a, a gentle signal. Oh, I wasn't very kind with that person, maybe. Do you know? And then when you meditate, it comes back straight away in the evening. Say, oh, you feel like shameful a bit or something. Or you feel frightened to have done something like that, you know. 
or dread something. And it's just like a little um, message from, from your mind that is helping you to maybe not do it again the next time. Do you understand? If you didn't have these signals, maybe you would forget all about it and continue to be heedless. Or conceited, you know, thinking, you know, she's wrong. You know, she deserved me talking her badly. She deserved me, you know, she deserved to be me being rude. You know, you might have that kind of conceit. So what we call iriotapa, you know, when you sort of feel a bit shameful or embarrassed about something, take it as a feeling simply and use this feeling to find out, you know, how to, look, to take care of that, to take care maybe of this memory which brings you back to, I have to be more vigilant. For me, it's always been, the, the effect of was that I have to be more vigilant and mindful next time. That's what it brought to my mind again and again. So it's like a teacher, an inner teacher, telling you, be more careful next time. Okay, and I'm going to stop soon, but, well, to stop soon, I should never say that because I'm not, I'm, you can't count on me, maybe I'll get a bit longer than soon. <laughs> so what I mean is that there's a context to all this, okay, which is important to know. Okay, the Buddha is really teaching us to bring into our heart a happy world, a happy mind, a happy life, right? His whole life was dedicated to bring wisdom and happiness into people's life. So they either go to the path of complete liberation or they live the life with the great confidence that their world can be transformed, you know, for the better. It's alive and well to continue to be transformed. Isn't it wonderful that life can be transformed? I think many people are depressed because they don't see that. I was, I would never be clinically depressed, but what brought me to the to the Dhamma, is that I felt the, 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 I felt the death of this world, you know, I felt it was something very death, kind of dead about the world. I wasn't very wise, you know, but it seemed like something was just like mechanical and repetitive and boring and there was no meaning and there was, the, you know. And, it, you know, I was moving towards Buddhism in a way without knowing. It is a dead world if you're not mindful, awake, and vigilant. Like the Buddha says, if you're not awake, it's like being, like being dead. It's a dead world. If you feel depressed, you're right to feel depressed about a dead world. It's about time you wake up to the living world, the world of the living in yourself. You don't have to wake up everybody. Just in yourself, you can begin there. So look at the context, you know, of bringing happiness into your heart, happiness into the life of others. So the monastery is a fierce place because we don't always bring happiness in the life of others. You notice that. We spend many years making other people miserable with our own kilesa and making ourselves miserable because we have to struggle with all these forces, you know, of delusion. It's a battle with Mara. It's not fun. 
And you can be so misunderstood as well, trying to the best you can. And of course you can hurt people without intentionally doing that. So this is something you have to really take on board, you know. You you might be not understood, you might be uh, uh, criticized, you might be, you know, if you stop smiling all the time, people think you don't like them anymore. So you have to be careful. When you practice, it's good to come to a monastery. At least everybody understands you. (laughs) You can look around and be miserable. We're not going to worry about it too, too much because... We think that probably you have you, are, you have listened to the Buddhist or Buddhist teaching, the Four Noble Truths, and so on, and maybe you're capable to use this teaching for liberation of miserable mental states. So, at some point, you're not cultivating the path just for yourself. At some point, once you know all the, the rope of the practice, once you know how to handle the means of practice. You can get bored. You say, well, I know it all. It's not, you know, what's, the, what's to do now? You know, what do I do now? You know, I know how vulnerable truths. I know Anicca Dukkarnata. I know, you know, what do I have to do now? I have no, I've seen insight. I've seen, I know how to meditate. You know, at least some wisdom paths. You know, I know how to do this, how to do that. I've learned this, I've learned that. And you say, God, you know, what do I have, what do I have to do next? At some point, you rise up to another level of existence, I think. That's my feeling. That's my experience. Because the self becomes not so important anymore. And you start tuning in with the rest of the world. You know, you start tuning in with people being miserable. And you really want to make, maybe without doing anything, just looking after this one, you want to help the world, not by trying to sort out everybody else, but by creating a world here, that is really kind and loving, you know, that is comp- uh, understanding the misery of others. So you don't add in, you don't want to add any more misery to other people because you know how awful it is when you or yourself are miserable, when you have been miserable, you're very consciously more careful to not hurt people. The self is into hurting, hurting. I've seen that in myself. It's very nasty, something very nasty, very kind of uh, uh, creepy almost, you know, how much you want to hurt people because they hurt you. Even when they haven't done much. You haven't got much generosity of heart to let people make mistakes, you know. You don't have much generosity of heart to let people get things wrong, not do what you want them to do. It's immediately you can criticize them and hate them because they're not perfect for you. So, are you going to really watch that perfectionist in you? Because if you're not, per- if you expect others to be perfect, it's more likely, most likely, that you expect yourself to be perfect, and you are the one who suffer most. And as a great Chinese master say, said, Master Hua, you know, don't criticize others. Don't criticize the fault of others. The fault of others is your own faults. You'll recognize them because you're doing them. You do that yourself. Maybe not in this lifetime, you don't know. Maybe, maybe you're a master at lying or something. And you're created, you know, developed lots of habits and not being truthful, for example. And then that comes, you continue in your life stream. I don't know about it, don't worry about it, I know nothing about life. I, I see uh, previous life in the feeling I feel now. Do you understand? I can tell you. The thing that happens now, sometimes you say, 
I don't remember this in this life. I don't know what it is, you know. The images you have, the, f the visions you have, the, the experience inside you you have, and so on. You say, where did I come from? You know, it's interesting. But you don't make, you know, anicca You go straight to that. Clear the mind. Don't hang on to anything. It's worthwhile. But you need help. Namarawati hopefully can support you in that way. Our sangha, each other, we help each other, right? So don't hes never hesitate to ask for help. You know, it's a worthy, it's a worthy, um, uh, quote unquote, project to transform the heart and liberate it from misery. You know, and then be a, a somebody who brings happiness into this world here and the world of others. It's worthwhile. So I end on that.